Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to anyone listening, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 5 of the Well-Read Podcast. I am your host, Megan Bjorki, a.k.a. The Real Bookish Writer. I am a reader, writer, bookseller, book festival goer, and I am and always have been obsessed with genre fiction. While you're here, there will be two segments, a short one where I review the books I've read for the past week, and then a longer one, which will consist of a one-on-one author interview. Without further ado, let's jump right in. The first book I read this week was an arc of What the River Knows by Isabella Banez, which is out October 31st. In Abanez's fourth book, Bolivian-Argentinian Inez Oliveira belongs to the glittering upper society of 19th century Buenos Aires, and she has everything a girl might want, except for the one thing she yearns for the most, her globe-trotting parents who frequently leave her behind. When she receives word of their tragic deaths, Inez inherits their massive fortune and a mysterious guardian, an archaeologist in partnership with his Egyptian brother-in-law. Yearning for answers, Inez sails to Cairo, bringing her sketch pads and an ancient golden ring her father sent to her for safekeeping before he died. But upon her arrival, the old world magic tethered to the ring pulls her down a path where she soon discovers there's more to her parents' disappearance than what her guardian led her to believe. With her guardian's infuriatingly handsome assistant thwarting her at every turn, Inez must rely on ancient magic to uncover the truth about her parents' disappearance, or risk becoming a pawn in a larger game that will ultimately kill her. This book is pitched as The Mummy Meets Death on the Nile, and as someone who loves Brendan Fraser's The Mummy, I'm talking favorite movie of all time, I freaking loved this book. I'm officially obsessed. What the River Knows is a mystery, adventure, fantasy, romance, and thriller mixed into one. The ancient Egyptian history and atmosphere is gorgeous and lush. The main characters are great and their chemistry is absolute fire. And this book literally just has it all. Magical objects, betrayal, tension, love, lies, secrets, twists and turns, and so much more. I loved the writing and the book in general, and I cannot wait for the sequel. I also reread Mara Rutherford's most recent release, A Multitude of Dreams, this time on audiobook, because it's a wonderful spooky season read and I just love her books in general. In this one, a bloody plague has finally passed, but there are fresh horrors lying in its wake. Princess Imogen of Gosland has lived a sheltered life for three years at the boarded up castle. She and the rest of its inhabitants safe from a bloody Mori Roja plague that's ravaged the kingdom. But Princess Imogen has a secret. And as King Stuart descends further into madness, it's at great risk of being revealed. Rations dwindle each day and unhappy murmurings threaten to crack the facade of the years-long charade being played within the castle walls. Nico Mott once enjoyed a comfortable life of status, but the plague took everyone and everything from him. If not for the generosity of a nearby lord, Nico may not have survived the Mori Roja's aftermath. But does owing Lord Crane his life mean he owes him his silence? When Lord Crane sends Nico to search for more plague survivors in the castle, Nico collides with the princess who wants to break out. They will each have to navigate the web of lies they've woven if they are going to survive the nightmares that lie ahead. This book is creative and fresh, and it's very much a gothic fantasy. The main characters, who are from very different worlds at the beginning of the book, come together wonderfully in an attempt to save each other, and their development is sweet and a nice contrast to all the blood and death surrounding their circumstances. This book is atmospheric, eerie, and intricate, and just a wonderful read. That's it for the book reviews this week, so let's dive into our author interview. Our guest today is someone I am so happy to have on. She is a Chinese-American writer who writes witty, flirtatious dialogue and stories that are funny, beautiful, and deeply romantic. 
From attending culinary school to working in big tech to writing love stories, she creates experiences that are full of heart and love. Her first book, Lunar Love, was published at the beginning of this year and was a book of the month club pick, and her next book, Red String Theory, comes out in January. When she's not writing novels, she works as a content strategist and user experience writer and currently lives in Nashville with her husband, two cats, and dog. Please welcome Lauren Kung Jessen. Hello, Lauren. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to chat with you. I've been a fan of yours since the beginning of this year when I read Lunar Love. Uh, Forever sent me a copy and I completely devoured it. And then I chose it as my book of the month pick. (laughs) So I have multiple copies of the book. I love that. And I'm very, very excited for Red String Theory. Uh, It's your second book that's coming out. How has the process been, you know, transitioning from writing your first book to this newest one? I wrote Red String Theory almost as soon as I sold Lunar Love. So that happened right away. And so I was still writing it in that bubble of there weren't any reviews. I hadn't literally no one had read it at that point because, um, it hadn't even been edited yet, mm-hmm. uh, Lunar Love. So when I wrote my second book, I was like in this very um, protective bubble, like in the same way that I had written Lunar Love in. And so now I'm drafting and it's a different experience this time around because I do have um, reviews and comments in my head. And so I try to filter that out. Um, but It is a different process, I think, because of how I did that in succession pretty quickly to one another. Are you currently writing your third one? Because the second one, Red String Theory, that's completely done, correct? Yes, that one is done. So you're working on your third one. That's very exciting. How (laughs) has has your actual writing process been for this third one? Um, Because, you know, the first book, you're not under contract. Um, you know, like you said, you were kind of in a bubble where you don't have reviews, you don't have this feedback yet from a, you know, an editorial team um, to now where you have a contract, you have deadlines that you have to meet. How has that kind of been with this one? It has been so different. And even from the first, to the second, to the third, and the first one, I started writing that book when I didn't have a job and I was kind of doing my own thing. And then I wrote the second book with a full-time job. I'm doing the same for this third book as well. Um, but I've found that as I've aged, I can't get up as early anymore. And it was something that I was like, oh, I'll just get up at five and write in the morning and then work at night. And I think, I mean, maybe call it burnout. I'm just so tired of that pace. And so for the third book, I was like, I need to be more sustainable. I want to live a life. I don't want to sacrifice so much time away from my husband and my pets and travel and doing things like that, reading, supporting other authors. So I'm making a conscious effort to be more sustainable is how I call it and really try to protect my mental health. And what that looks like is writing for um, one part of the day. So either the morning or the night, usually at night for a couple of hours after work. And it takes a little bit of a longer path. Um, I'm usually a very fast drafter. So I've had to get very comfortable being uncomfortable and like living in that space of this is taking longer. I am tired today. I had a really tiring day at work or it was a really busy day and I have to accommodate for more because I do have other things in my life that also require focus and attention and time and energy. 
and my energy is not limitless. <laughs> I have learned. Protecting your mental health is such an important concept that I, it makes me happy that more and more people are doing that now and taking actual steps to protect that. Um, as a writer, you know, again, again, going back to when you weren't on contract, when you were able to kind of do it, how was the mental health aspect? Do you find that you have like more anxiety now or did you have anxiety back then? How, how has that process specifically kind of changed? Yeah. Anxiety exists within me always, but, <laughs> um, it has definitely has increased in parts and it has become, it's something that I actively work on. So kind of to your original point about the mental health, I think it's a really important conversation that I think, or I hope is hopefully happening more now. I know when I was kind of in my book two era of like writing and drafting, a lot of what I kind of heard was like, you will have to sacrifice a lot if you want to be a writer. And I wake up at 4 a.m. and write and, or I work up in the late hours of the night and these words of like sacrifice and it just kind of being that lifestyle was totally how I did it in the second book. But I don't think it's the only way to do it. And I'm learning that now. Sometimes it just takes more time. Sometimes it will be really fiercely protecting boundaries. And um, if you want to do something on the weekend, do it and then just have to compartmentalize a little bit more of not of being present and making sure you're not thinking about all the work that you have to do. And I think this can extend beyond the writing life with your job or other things that are going on. But I definitely have anxiety around lots of things. I'm an overthinker. I'm learning now also a slight perfectionist. And so a lot of things that are out of my control, I struggled with a lot with lunar love where I was like, what's happening? What's the timeline? What can I, I wanted to control everything and know what was going on. And a lot of that is out of my control. So how I'm going to manage my anxiety this time around when the, when registering theory comes out is remembering what is in my control. And those look, that looks like writing. Of course, I control the words and what I do with that and how much time I spend on it. I control social media so my, how often I post and how much of that I want to spend time on and spend time doing, I control whether I look at reviews. Um, so I can control some things like what is the art going to be for the pre-order campaign for swag. And so I'm really trying to focus on that as well as celebrating, celebrating little wins. Like I crossed 20,000 words. I received past pages. I accomplished this or that. And those are things that I can do. And that will help me more, I think, moving forward into managing promotion, writing, editing, and just the whole cycle of things that wasn't I didn't have to deal with before um, managing all of that on top of a full-time job. So you talked about, you know, celebrating these little wins. Is there anything specific that you like to do to celebrate these kind of little wins? Because I mean, I can't speak to doing past pages, but hitting a writing mark like those 20,000 words, that's, that's big. Like that's a huge chunk of a book and that it's exciting to finally get to that point. So how do you kind of celebrate your little wins? I love celebrating little wins with food. Nice. So like cupcakes or going out to a nice meal with my husband. Um, I love celebrating with like sweets or a meal. <laughs> you can't go wrong. I love food. 
Yeah. And, and I know that you went to culinary school, correct? Yes. And I know that you had a cooking blog as well. Um, what, where did that come from? Have you always had a love for food? Cause it also translates. I mean, I've only read lunar love. I haven't read red string theory, but food and family and, you know, living in everything that kind of surrounds cooking and food. It's, it's a big thing in lunar love. So where did that love kind of come from? It is. Yeah. And I did go to culinary school. I had a, um, have, I mean, I say have, but I've been very, very bad about updating my food and film blog because of time and the lack of it. Um, but I had always loved, um, cooking and I, I cooked a lot with my dad. And so, um, I think when I, I was in college, when I started my food and film blog, I was a film major and I was like, oh, that's really fun. I wanted to find outlets to express myself. And I did that through like WordPress and Tumblr and those kinds of like original forms of um, blogging. And I, I love blogging. I think it's so fun. Um, and Substack kind of gives me that sense of blogging again um, now. But I was like, what can I do with film? I was like, I could do film reviews, but I love food so much that I was like, maybe I'll combine the two and make the food that you see in movies or food that's inspired by movies. And that's where A Dash of Cinema was born. And I had run that for like 11 years, really consistently. Um, at one point I was I was posting every day, which was a lot of work. Wow. Yeah, it was <laughs> a lot. Um, and then I started creating my own recipes and, and making, when I was out of college and had a kitchen is when I really started to create recipes. And it was from that point that I was like, it would be really fun to go to culinary school to do food writing. So I did not go to work in a kitchen, although I did end up working in a kitchen. Um, but I was like, I want to be a food writer. And I, this is how I'll learn really about um, the depths and nuances of food and flavors and ingredients. And then I did end up working in a kitchen. Um, and then I was living in New York City at the time. And I the food industry, the food writing industry was tough. Savor had cut their issues from like in half and everything was kind of going online and it was hard. It was hard to find food writing jobs. So now I get to write about food in my books, which is kind of a roundabout way of doing it. <laughs> Does food play a role at all in red string theory? There is food in red string theory and, um, and kind of like more romantic ways. So in Lunar Love, there was food with um, Olivia and her popo making dumplings in kind of a competitive element of a date with Bennett. And in this one, it's a little bit more of eating the food. Um, uh, they Not are, necessarily the preparation. <laughs> yes, less preparation. Um, they're just like eating the food and which is which is a good part of it too. Uh, they spend a magical night together in New York City, the two characters. And mm. so there's some food food in that <laughs> you're all there's of course there's, there's some food in that how is the food scene in New York how is that different than kind of the food scene where you live now in Nashville you know Nashville is growing so much that we have new restaurants popping up all the time which I think we just came at a really good time we've moved here about a year and a half ago and it is it is growing like wild it there's always mm -hmm. a new building going up downtown there's tons of new restaurants coming in a lot of Asian restaurants too, which has been really, really great for me is what I miss a lot about Los Angeles. Um, certainly not as much as New York. I think we have yet to have a good dim sum place here, which is 
like my go-to and I miss it so much. So every time I'm in New York, I go find dim sum. Um, but the, I mean, it's, it's certainly not close to New York, but it is growing. Very nice. Nashville's always been a place I've wanted to visit. I've been to New York before, but Nashville, I don't know. There's something captivating about that city. I feel like just from an outsider's point of view where it just seems like it would be such a good time to go hang out and just, just relax for a week and just completely explore and get lost in the city. I know that you really like myths and stories and how they evolve and change over time. Um, Lunar Love has to do with the Chinese Zodiac and the Red String Theory has to do with the Red String Theory. What inspired those stories? Was there a particular moment like in your childhood? Was it just these kinds of things just from the culture? What what inspired those two? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of great stories and myths within Chinese culture. And the fascinating thing about myths is that not only do they evolve over time, but they can, there's also a lot of different perspectives of the same myth. So any myth that you read, there's not just one exact version of it. There's always multiple versions. And I thought that was so interesting because as somebody who's always looking for like the facts and the source of truth and wanting to know which one is real, it kind of opens up my mind a little bit when I think about myth and elements of culture and belief systems that we could have different interpretations and perspectives of. So with the Chinese Zodiac, I had grown up with that, um, learning about my traits as a horse and my family's traits and celebrating Lunar New Year. And I thought that would be a really fun juxtaposition to online dating, which is how I met my husband. And that was the world that I was used to was this kind of like more tech forward digital app space. And with the red, uh, red thread of fate is a myth in actually several Asian cultures. So there's um, Japan has a version of the myth and so does China. And I um, thought it was so beautiful. The idea of soulmates and fate and being connected to your soulmate by a red thread attached to your ankle. And I thought about a character having this belief where she's looking for her soulmate and what that looks like when she's paired with someone who does not believe in soulmates or fate. Well, it's such a good juxtaposition too of having someone who believes in fate and someone who doesn't. Yes. Someone who believes in soulmates, someone who doesn't. How do you get in the headspace when you write? I know some writers, they have to have complete silence. Some writers have to listen to music. Some people are plotters. Some people are pantsers. What does your specific process look like and has it changed since you've started writing? To get in the headspace, that one's tough because I I've thought about that where I'm like, what do I do? Like, what do I do when I sit down and I like, I don't like candles. I don't even like clean my space beforehand. I kind of am just like, it is time to start writing and I need to start writing. And I kind of like that I've trained myself to do that in a way because that means I can pretty much write anywhere. Sometimes I battle Um, the aforementioned perfectionism where I'm like, the situation has to be perfect and I need to, but that's more of a time thing where I need to have two, three hours cleared in my schedule in order to sit down and write. And then a lot of that is potentially procrastination of if I'm like, I only have 15, 20 minutes, I can't, you know, it'll take me 20 minutes just to open the file and Mm -hmm. just to get everything like opened up. And so I think that's an excuse, but Sometimes it's also could be an energy thing where I'm like, I'm not feeling it right now. I need to listen to that too. But 
when I sit down to write, I do like to have my notebook and um, have, I have my notes of what I need to work on that day. That really helps. Um, I have a little time tracker and word count tracker, and that helps me to kind of like have the routine before and after of what I've accomplished for the day. For Lunar Love, I originally, I had, I guess, like a blueprint because I had written a different version of the book um, that was a little less rom-com oriented. So I had a framework, although I completely rewrote it. So I, I kind of had the seed of the idea and I knew what I wanted to do with it. For book two, I did such a detailed outline. I was like, I need to know exactly where I'm going with this. And it did end up changing a lot with my self-edits and with my editor. But having that guide is so, so helpful for me, especially because at the time I was waking up very early and getting started at 5 a.m. that I didn't need, I could not think about the creative element almost. I had to really just get going. Now I do have an outline, but I'm finding that it's changing more as I go through where I'm like, do I want to keep going down this path? What are the characters saying to me? Do they, do they need something different? And so already the outline has changed about three times which has been, I don't know if it's unsettling or the way that it goes. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like I, I haven't quite, I haven't quite answered that question yet. Yeah, we'll see. With your first book, you were, like I mentioned earlier, you were picked for a book of the month club pick. Can you speak a little bit to that process and how that went? Because book of the month is, it's a huge subscription, you know, tons and tons of people read it um, and use it constantly every month. So was that something that you guys had to apply for that your team reached out to them? Did they reach out to you? How did, how did that process kind of work? I wish I knew <laughs> how the magic happens. Um, I think, I feel like books get sent out and, and there's a team that does a lot of reading uh, for these books. So I think that is how it goes, but that was definitely such a highlight. Um, I still pinch myself every day about it where I'm like, I can't believe, I can't believe it. Um, it's, it was really exciting. That's, and that's one of the things I was going to ask you, what's, what's the most memorable moment from your career so far? Cause I know that that one has to be a big one. That what's, one's what's huge. your biggest though. Oh, I mean, um, something very special about this, um, journey so far and, and memorable moment has been while while that was huge and I've been to so many events and was so lucky to be able to go to incredible events and be invited and be on panels which is honestly I didn't expect any of that in my debut year and it was really special being able to connect with readers like you and meet you has been honestly so lovely um I feel like my my friendships and communities have grown ever since starting my writing career and really publishing. And that has brought me to more people than it ever has in my life. And I just feel more connected to people across the country. And it's, that's really been so special. The writing and reading community, it's one of the best communities I've ever been a part of. Yeah. I've, I went to Steamy LitCon and the amount of people that were there was incredible. The turnout was amazing. But to go to a conference like that, and there's conferences, you know, all the time, there's panels, there's festivals, to go to these places and see so many people that are supportive of the community, you know, they don't judge you for what you read, they don't judge you for what you write, you know, they're there to support you 
I don't think I met one mean or rude person the entire time I was there. Everyone was kind, everyone was supportive. And so to see people come out and support, especially debut authors, like in the way that they do, I think is so, so special. And I'm I'm excited to see how the people that support you because of Lunar Love, how you get to meet them now. Because, you know, when you have your debut, they've never really read anything of yours before. So they find you through your book. But now when they read Red String Theory, a lot of them are going to read that because they've read Lunar Love and because they're a fan. And so I'm really excited for you to experience that and go through that and see all of these people who've already fallen in love with your writing stay in love with your writing, if that, if that makes any sense. I'm just, yes. I'm, I'm really, I'm so excited for this book. Is Thank there, you. are you, are you, are you going on tour for Red String Theory at all? Are you doing any festivals or anything? So I do get asked that and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I didn't go on tour for Lunar Love and I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't had the marketing meeting yet for it. So maybe, hopefully, um, hopefully I'll be able to come to more cities uh, this time around. I would love to, I would love to do that. Well, I'm hoping you at least come over to the West Coast again. Yes. I think I met you. It was at uh, the LA Times Festival of Books. It was. Yes. Yeah. So I hope you get to at least come over and do a couple of those again this year in the summer. I mean, half the book takes place in Pasadena and at NASA. So I have to. You absolutely have. You have to come over here. You have to come over here. Um, so you've you've lived in several different places. Um, has your travels, has living in these different places, has that affected and influenced your writing in a certain way? Do you find yourself going like, okay, well, I want to stick? There's some writers who say, okay, well, I live in Seattle. I just want to write books that take place in Seattle. And then there's other people who are like, I want to, I want each book to take place in a different, you know, in a different section. How has that kind of worked with your book? Yeah, that's funny you say Seattle because that's where I'm from. And I'm like, nice. I would like I would love to write a book there because I I love Seattle so much. And it definitely all of the cities I've lived in have certainly influenced my writing. I like writing about places that I've lived in because then I can I just know it better. I think it would be hard, not impossible, to write about a place that I have never lived, let alone been. So it, it does inform. I love writing about New York. Uh, I'm glad I was able to do it for the second book. Um, it feels like a second home. I live there um, and that's where I met my husband. So it's a very special place for us. And then obviously being from Seattle, I know that place very, very well. And then Lunar Love was in Los Angeles, which is where I moved from to Nashville, which I'm still getting to know. So to write about Nashville, I would kind of need to stick to places around the area that I that I'm in and, and know about, but that's kind of where my, my comfort zone lies. But luckily I've, I've lived in enough places to have a good, good material <clears throat> to, to pull from. To pull from. And yeah. one thing I loved in Lunar Love was that the setting itself was like its own character. It had so much quirkiness and attitude, you know, and it was, it was its own little character and it was its own piece of the book. And like you said, I think that comes from living in a place you know what I mean writing about a place that you've lived in because you don't you don't quite get that if you write about a place that you haven't really lived in a lot of the times um okay so so who has been your favorite character to write and why 
That was not giving us too many spoilers. This one's so hard because I think it depends on my mood, but but one character I love and I know it's like unfair because it's not out yet is is Rooney, who is in Red String Theory. She's she's a string art installation artist. She's a string installation artist. So she, because she believes in this red thread of fate, she also literally lives it by creating red string installations. And cool. it's a way to manifest her belief and bring kind of bigger ideas together. And there are a couple of installations that are described and shown in the book. So we will see her at work. Um, but she is just, she was so fun to write because she kind of just says the most random things, what's on her mind. <laughs> she totally brings Jack, who's the, um, who's the other character in this book who works at NASA, who doesn't believe in fate. And he's very like, rule oriented and so different than Rooney who just draws him out of the his comfort zone especially in New York and that's where that kind of that magic happens is is him being pulled out of his comfort zone why do you write romance what specifically do you do romance because I mean you're obviously very talented you have a history of writing you know you you did food writing all of the stuff what made you pick romance I love love so I love romantic comedies growing up, watching them in movies, reading them in books and romance. And I, I even did my thesis, my senior thesis on the grand gesture. So I was really, really into the idea of um, having a really cute meet cute and having these grand gestures in my life. And like, I, I just love the idea of finding your person. Like, I just think that is such a Maybe I'm a little bit like Rooney in that way, where I'm like, I love that idea of, of love and falling in love. And I think with romantic comedies and romance, we get to have that every time we open a book and we get to watch two characters fall in love, which like, that's so amazing to be able to experience this in so many different ways through different mute cutes and going through their journeys with them. Um, I think it's really special to be able to witness what, even though they're fictional characters, <laughs> I love that. And in movies, I love watching that happen too. So how do you come up with your meet cutes? Cause that's obviously a very important concept for a romance book. You know, it's a very important part. So how did, how do you come up with those? They are, they tend to be rooted in unexpected places. So I kind of love the idea of this spark and magic happening in a place where you're like, interesting, like, at a bakery um and in the middle of trying to find a bun like I think that is is fun and the meet cute in red string theory is like in just an you know another kind of everyday place that you would not think you would find love in so I kind of like taking that those kind of ordinary places and, and making them a place where a spark of love could happen that's I think that's amazing. really fun. Yeah. That's so sweet to take, like you said, a place that you would think is just ordinary, a day to day thing, and something extraordinary comes from it. That's yeah. so, oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. Thank you. Okay. So we are going to go to the rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. So rapid fire question time. What is your favorite genre to read? Is it, is it also romance? Romantic comedy. Okay. Yeah. What's your what's your favorite book? What's your favorite rom com that you've read? No pressure. I don't know. I know pick one. <laughs> what's the like, most recent yeah. good rom com that you've read? 
The most recent is I, oh, well, I recently read You Again, which is, I don't know if you've read it yet. I haven't read it yet. Okay. It'll be one of my favorite reads of the year. It, I still think about it. I loved it. I loved it. What's your favorite movie rom-com? Are you a movie rom-com person? Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I I love When, Her- when Harry Met Sally. Such a classic. It's, it's a classic. It's always number one on things. I, and I I'm, I know there are like amazing, there's so many amazing ones. That's a good one though. That's, that's a classic for a reason. So if you could write one trope that you haven't written already, what would it be? Friends to lovers. It's a good one. A good friends to lover story is tough. Chef's kiss. It is. Tough, it is it tough. can be very good. Yeah. It can be very good. So what are you currently reading and what is next on your TBR list? Shout out to Susan Lee. I'm reading The Name Drop. Very nice. That's, yes. It's so good. It's so good. Oh my gosh. She's it's, amazing. It's wonderful. What's up next for you after Name Drop? I'm going to read Yellow Face. <laughs> I've heard nothing but good things about that one. Same. And I'm like, I just need to get to it. I'm a little, I was going to read it in a little, a few weeks ago. And I was in um, a state where I was taking a break from writing. And I was like, I don't know if I want to read about the publishing industry right now, but. <laughs> That's a good point. Good yeah. point. Are you a mood reader? Like, do you have to be in a certain mood to read certain books? Or can you just say, okay, I'm going to read this one next and then read that? It depends on what I'm doing. So I do a lot of reading for research when I'm drafting because I write about jobs where I like, I need to learn the job <laughs> and the, the whole topic and, and kind of what the characters are going through. So I, I'm pretty diligent about that, even if I feel like reading something else, but every now and then I'll alternate so that I can get in a mood read. Yeah. Mood read. yeah I'm, I'm so bad. I think right now, I think there's four books that I've started and I've gotten like halfway through, Yeah, but something will happen and it's not that the book is bad I could I'm really enjoying every single book but something will happen and it'll click and I'm like I need I need to read a different book I don't want to read this one anymore Mm -hmm. so I appreciate someone who who can say okay I'm going to read this one and and then they do it yes so what is the most valuable piece of advice you've received in regards to your writing I think it is probably less about the writing itself but more about I guess this would be like advice for um, like writers. It's like really focusing on, I guess two things. One, focusing on what you can control and that often is are the words. And then two, remembering why you're writing. And that will always be the place that you can go, come back to when you stumble across a review that doesn't make you feel good or you're tired or, 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 or like anything, fill in the blank. Um, is really is really go back to the heart of why it is that you write. So why did you write Lunar Love? What made you go, this is something that I want to put out in the world. This is what I want to create. I want this, this voice to be out there. What made you, what made you sit down and write Lunar Love? I wanted to feel seen. So I wrote it because I wanted to see myself in pages in a book and in a, in a romance and they're both mixed race Chinese American characters and my characters are mixed race um, through all of my books. There will be mixed race characters and I wanted to see myself in that. That diversity and having that is so, so important. And it makes mm-hmm. me happy that the industry 
and that readers in general, they're moving more towards that. You know what I mean? They're embracing those diverse voices more. Um, who's the diverse voice that you absolutely love, that you love, love, love to read? I love Amelia as um, her books are amazing. I, I love her. Her yeah. books are freaking phenomenal. Yeah. I'm so excited for her new one. They're, I sat down her last two books and I read them within, I think, four hours each. I was completely obsessed with her books. Yes. Absolutely amazing. They oh, are. They're the sweetest. Yeah. So how can, um, as someone who is Chinese American, um, and you know, like you said, you want, you wanted to feel seen, you wanted these stories to be out. What is a way apart from just buying the book, what's a way that readers can help support diversity and support, um, this kind of community and diversity within the community? I think, um, Certainly, certainly promotion and word of mouth. So on social media and then telling friends and family, I think that has been a really a great way to spread the word. Um, and then also reading reading year round and making sure that that is a more of a habit and incorporated into um, all of the months of the year. Um, but then as as you mentioned, if if possible, when possible, um, the hype is amazing and so so important, but so is so is the dollars and spent and mm-hmm. supporting with dollars, and that's what ultimately that's what publishers I think will will see too, um, and and the authors I think that just helps across the board. But um, you know, money talks, and so having having that support too. But I know also like that means requesting from libraries and spreading word of mouth, because then that's also a way for books to be purchased. I've seen that about, you know, requesting it in your library. I saw that earlier today, actually on Instagram, someone was talking about that. Like, okay, how can you help support my book? Just ask for it in the library because mm-hmm. once it's there, whether it's through something like Libby, you know, where it's an audiobook or digital, or it's physically there, you know, people peruse the shelves, they go through things. And so they may have never known about that book until they just happen to come across it. I mean, I've found numerous, numerous, numerous books that I had never heard of or authors I had never heard of until I was just kind of browsing at the bookstore and it caught my eye. And now I'm like obsessed with their books. And so that's like, it's such a, 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 not a small piece, but it's one I feel like people don't talk about enough is that if you have a library, you know, request it at your library. Um, so it's there, so it's visible, so it gets seen. And I like that you said making sure to read diverse books by diverse authors year round. It's mm-hmm. not just something that's limited to one month. You know, it's something that we continue to do throughout the year. And it's not just a one-time thing, you know, for 30 days out of the year. It's it's a yeah. consistent thing. So if you weren't an author and you could have any dream job, what would it be? It's tough because I I have had such a winding career path and have done so many different things <laughs> and which you know I know is a theme in the name in the name drop mm-hmm. of like picking your path and I I truly feel like I a few years ago I transitioned into a different career and to design um, which is what I do in my day job and I, I I love that so I feel like I you know I can love writing and I can love my work and design work. Um, and I think this is important that like, you can still get tired from it. You can still be tired from the things you love. 
Exactly. They can still exhaust you sometimes. Yeah. So quick pivot. If you could live anywhere in the world that you haven't lived already, where would you live? I think I would live in Paris. That would be amazing. It would be amazing. So are you a savory or a sweet food kind of person? Or are you both? I'm probably a mood eater, just like I'm a mood eater. (laughs) (laughs) But I do love celebrating with sweet things. Things. What's your what's your favorite dessert of all time? I love chocolate lava cake. Oh my god! No, I shouldn't have asked that question. Should not have asked. No, I'm totally going <laughs> to be craving so chocolate lava cake. Good it's it's hard to find. It's hard to, to make. It's not it like hard is. to make, but it takes an effort. It's it does take an effort. It's not okay. Hey, just throw it in there and it. Right. You know, 15 minutes. It's done. That now all I'm going to want is cake for the rest of the evening. I shouldn't have asked that question. <laughs> Sorry. I, pol- I apologize. <laughs> So if you could invite someone over for dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite? Nora Ephron. Really? Okay. Is she, she's one of your favorites? She's one of my favorites. Um, I mean, I like from her books to her movies, like I just love her. It's hard not to. I know. It's hard hard not to. to. Now, if you could invite a fictional character over for dinner, who would you invite? So I'm between two people, Bridget Jones or Kathleen Kelly. Oh my goodness. Those are such good choices. They would be so fun, right? Oh my goodness. Okay. Kathleen Kelly from You've Got Mail, right? That's what yes. you're talking about? Yes. I freaking love that book when I asked you earlier about the rom-coms. Yes. Um, and you said When Harry Met Sally. I think that's one of my favorite. I love, love that movie. I'm also old enough to remember what AOL was. Oh, I remember yeah. having you sit there and wait for it to load up. Absolutely. The like away oh messages too. Right. Exactly. And yeah. oh my goodness, Bridget Jones. I watched those. I watched the movies. I haven't read the books, but I watched the movies not too long ago. And they're freaking hilarious. So funny. The scene in, especially in the second one where Colin Firth and Hugh Grant, they fight. That is the most realistic man fight that I think yeah. I've ever seen. It's it's, it's gold. excellent casting. It's so it good. And yeah, they would be really fun to have over and just like to cook and chat and cry and eat ice cream from, <laughs> from the tub. They would be very supportive in that aspect. Super, yeah. Oh my super goodness. Supportive. Okay, now last question. What currently brings you joy? This is probably an unexpected one, but um, MLS soccer has been giving me so much joy lately. Very um, nice. Yeah, our team in Nashville has went to the League's Cup and we played Miami where Messi, uh, Lionel Messi is, I don't know if you follow soccer, but I know who he is. Yes. He came to America and he has just been so amazing to watch. So actually tonight there's a Nashville versus Miami game again, rematch. So I'm very excited. Very nice. Okay. Well, I won't keep you so you can go watch that. (laughs) We have a couple hours, (laughs) but thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for doing this. You honestly have no idea how much I appreciate it and how much I've loved chatting with you. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm so excited for Red String Theory. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. This is really fun. Well, that is it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And before I sign off, I would just like to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to tune in. This has been a dream of mine for a long time, and I am absolutely honored to have you here. If you want to stay up to date on episodes and announcements, please subscribe or follow me at The Real Bookish Writer or at The Well Read Podcast on Instagram. Thank you again for listening and have a magical day. See you next week. Mm-hmm.